The political circus is gearing up for 2024. Meanwhile, Americans are suffering from the costs of the political elite. Join the Mises Institute in Fort Myers, Florida on November 4th for an event dedicated to the White House, the Fed, and the economy. We'll cut through the campaign rhetoric to look at the future of the U.S. economy, with a lineup including Bob Murphy, Patrick Newman, Jonathan Newman, and Murray Sabrin. Register now at Mises.org FL23. Human Action Podcast listeners can receive a special $10 discount using promo code FL2023. Audience numbers for Mises Institute podcasts are going through the roof, and we want to thank our great listeners with a special deal. Per Bilan's primer on Austrian economics, How to Think About the Economy, has become one of the best sellers in the Mises store, and we're giving it away for free to our podcast listeners. This short book is a great refresher for understanding proper economic logic and also a perfect introduction to economics for friends and family. So get your free copy of How to Think About the Economy by visiting Mises.org slash H-A-Pod-Free. That's H-A, like human action, pod-free. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Andreas, welcome to the Human Action Podcast. Thank you for having me. So, uh, in as much as you're a new guest on the show, maybe can you just spend a minute explaining a bit about your background and your association with the Mises Institute? Yeah, sure. So, I started out as a minarchist. Uh, I followed Yaron Brook, uh, the objectivist. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. Uh, and I saw this debate between him and a guy called Lucas Dominiak. He's a professor in philosophy in Poland. So they had this debate on YouTube whether you should have a minimal state or a stateless society. And of course, I was uh, cheering for Jaron Brook uh, the first time I saw that. And then afterwards, I started thinking, but wait a second, maybe minarchism is a little bit incoherent. And maybe what this crazy anarcho-capitalist guy is saying about a stateless society is makes more sense. It, it is more coherent. So... I started wondering, I started Googling, and I rewatched the debate. And after some, I think I rewatched it five times or something. It's a two hour long debate. So I've spent many times, uh, many hours watching that debate. So uh, after Googling, I actually found the Mises Institute and I found the Swedish Institute, uh, which is where I live. I live in Sweden. So um, I contacted the Swedish uh, Mises Institute and I sent them an article and uh, they published it. So uh, from there it goes. And I think this was three years ago. So I'm self-taught in Austrian economics. I'm not an economist in the classical sense, but I'm self-taught and uh, also in libertarianism. And 
I think it was a year and a half ago, I thought I should try writing something for the American Mises Institute. And uh, yeah, they liked what I had to offer. And uh, now I'm now I'm in. Now I'm right. well, fully great. involved. Can so, I ask you, it's, yeah, this always interests me to figure out people's intellectual journey. So I'm just, and incidentally, folks, uh, Yaron Brick just debated Brian Kaplan at the Soho Forum, the institution that Gene uh, Epstein runs. Uh, and so we'll put links and also, uh, Andreas, if you can send me after we get done here, the link to that debate that you said you watched five times. Yeah, we can we can link to that, uh, too, just so people are, are, you know, if they're curious. But do you remember? I'm just interested. Like when you watched the debate the first time, did you think the anarchy guy was crazy or was it like, oh, I wasn't expecting him to say something? Like, you know, I'm just wondering, like, were you? Were you surprised by the arguments he made or had you already encountered them as just for some reason over time, they sounded more compelling to you? Yeah, I'd say both. Uh, you know, I kept two thoughts in my head at the same time. So while I was thinking that he was crazy, there was still something uh, in me that said, okay, wait a minute, this, this could be right, uh, actually. So... Uh, I, I'd say both. I'd say both. Um, but he did have some good arguments, I thought, when I watched it the thir first time. And uh, when I watched it the fifth time, <laughs> I thought his arguments were really good. So. Okay, great. Um, so the reason I wanted you to come on today was for a recent article you had with the U.S.-based Mises Institute uh, yeah. that ran on October 2nd, 2023. And of course, folks will link to that as well. Uh, and the title was True Money Supply is the Correct Measure of Inflation, Not Consumer Price Index. So can you just give us a little background on uh, what, what you're getting across in this article? Yeah, so the common belief is that um, inflation is a price phenomenon that it has to do with a general increase in prices. And uh, then it follows from that belief that the CPI, the consumer price index has to be the, um, the correct measurement of that. And uh, we Austrians, we recognize that um, inflation is a monetary phenomenon. It is uh, an artificial increase in the money supply and uh, then it follows that the correct measure of inflation has to be a measure of the money supply. And that's where the true money supply get in. And uh, the, the name, just the name, you know, true money supply, it says everything. It does. Can you, yeah, so why don't we maybe let's unpack that a little bit. So true money supply, that's not a coin that you termed. That's no. a refer. Yeah. Do you want to explain yeah. a little bit for the listener who might not be familiar with that? Yeah. So you get the various, the various money supply metrics. You get the M zero, the M one, M two, M three, MZM, and so on. And while they, at least the M two and the M three can provide a, quite good metric of the money supply, they still include some um, 
some substitutes, monetary substitutes that Austrians don't uh, count as money, and they also exclude some um, some monetary substitutes that we do consider money. So the true money supply was developed by Murray Rothbard and Joseph Salerno. And just as the name suggests, it is, uh, it measures true money. And what do we mean by true money? Yeah, we mean that it is, um, that for something to be money, it has to be, it, it, it has to be a general, a general, um, medium of exchange and uh, it has to be used in all transactions uh, all the way so if you at the end of the day if you can't pay your bills with something it is not money if you can't pay your groceries with it it is not money so all the way down to the last transaction within your community it has to be accepted as money for it to be money Okay. Yeah, great. And so I hear I'm just elaborating what you're saying. So, you know, folks, as Andreas mentioned, there's, if you ask a regular mainstream economist, like what, what's the measure of the money supply or what's the stock of money? You know, they, they'll, if they know what they're talking about, they'll say, well, there's different, different ones. It depends. What, what do you mean? There's the base money or M zero there's M one. That's like currency plus checking account balances. There's M2, which includes money market mutual funds. And and the the bigger the, the number, like the M and then the number, like the more things they're including in there that get further away from, you know, a $50 bill. And and they have you know, lower and lower amounts of moneyness, the person might say. And, you know, they're, and they're all, you know, so there's, there's not ever going to be a, a, a share of Tesla stock counted in the money supply is things, you know, certificates of deposit or, or uh, things like that. And uh, traveler's checks, stuff like that. Not, not certificates of deposit. I, should, I meant to say traveler's checks, things that you, as you keep going beyond. Yeah. And so what the true money supply is, is yet, yeah, as Andreas was saying was Salerno and Rothbard said, okay, well to figure out which, you know, wh which of these various aggregates should we say is the one they were saying, well, let's just go back to first principles. What's the definition of money in the like, Misesian tradition of Austrian economics in terms of his theoretical work? And then let's go and, you know, with the data we have available, try to figure out which things best capture that, you know, that definition of what money is. And uh, and as Andreas said, you know, that's, that's where this true money supply figure uh, comes from. What, what's interesting, just to show folks that, it matters which one you use. I have a talk. I'll, I'll link to it um, in the show notes page. But I don't know if this, if you're not familiar with this, Andreas. But I went back and because, as you are probably aware, after the financial crisis in 2008, a lot of people, including me, were looking what the Federal Reserve was doing and were saying, "Well, hey, you know, this could cause significant consumer price inflation, like yeah. to try to you know get Americans to understand the potential danger." And it it didn't happen the way, you know, in the, in the time frame, certainly, that I thought it was going to. And I know, folks, there's lots of government tricks and whatever, but I still thought, you know, the price of eggs and gasoline was going to rise faster than it did in 2010, 2011. And, but then things did seem to be, you know, normal and according to the textbook after 2020, when the Federal Reserve pumped in a bunch of 
new base money. And then, you know, the consumer price index, even the official one, really was rising at an alarming rate the most, you know, since the late 70s, early 80s. And so people were saying what was different. And I went back and looked at the figures. And if you looked at M1, that went way up after 2008, even though CPI didn't, you know, match it. M2 also, or sorry, M1 also went up after, you know, 2020, but M2 behaved differently. M2, it did go up after 2008, but not as much. Like if you just looked at a chart of M2, you wouldn't have known something big happened around 2008 and forward, whereas M2 skyrocketed after 2020. And so I think part is that during the financial crisis, people were moving funds out of like money market accounts and into regular checking accounts. And so that's why M1 went up, but M2, you know, that that was two categories of the same thing. So my point is just that some of those nuances, depending on which metric you used, you could see that. And so that's why it really mattered. If all you'd looked at was M1, you would have thought, uh-oh, there's a lot of price inflation coming, you know, in 2010, and that didn't happen. But M2, you wouldn't have thought that. So that's just showing why it's important to, you know, have a metric that captures whatever it is you're trying to use it for. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, let me, Andreas, just to have something specific here, let me go. You had this line, uh, the the subject or the, yeah, the section title was the CPI deserves less attention. And you write the lure of the consumer price index or CPI doesn't just undermine price inflation, but it also camouflages monetary inflation. Uh, everywhere in the media and academic circles, CPIs uses the main measure of inflation. And along with this index, the experts sometimes talk about producer price indices and personal consumption expenditures. Um, so, and then you go on to say that price inflation is a symptom of monetary inflation. So can you just elaborate on that, that how the current focus camouflages what's, it sounds like what you're saying is the actual cause? Yeah, so one problem with the, CPI is that it is uh, a governmental thing. It's like uh, they pick and choose whatever goods and services will fit their narrative about the 2% inflation target that uh, most central banks have. And um, so that's one problem with it. And another problem is just like you said, it doesn't include stock prices or housing prices. You know, I don't know if you can say that you consume stocks, but you can definitely say that you consume a home. Mm-hmm. So if it would contain, uh, include homes, home prices, uh, the CPI would be much, much higher. And so they trick and they pick and choose whatever they feel like to fit their narrative. So that's one problem. And Another problem is that while you're just looking at rising prices, you are not looking at the the cause of the rising prices, you know. So you can come up with all these theories about why the prices are rising, that it is because of Vladimir Putin or it's because of the greedy capitalists just want to make more money and... Uh, that's a very dangerous thing. And uh, as always, when social sciences are in the hands of the the government, people with power, it it can be very dangerous, and it is very dangerous. 
Yeah, I don't know if you've seen it, Andreas. I'll see, if, folks, if I can get a, a link to it. But I believe something recently came out that was making the rounds on Twitter. Um, I think it was from the IMF. And it was like they were starting some new series about, like, ask an economist about topics. And the first video, it was like a good five minutes, was devoted to inflation. And this is a, an actual, you know, professional economist sitting down talking to the camera going through all about you know what you need to know about inflation and the whole five minutes never once mentioned central banks and creating money like i think they mentioned a central bank in terms of what can governments do to fight inflation and it was like well they could cut spending and lower aggregate demand or you know the central bank could raise interest rates and and that will dampen investment spending but nowhere did it say they could stop creating a lot more you know (laughs) <laughs> boatloads yep. of new money that was never even mentioned as one of the ingredients into what, where does, but and you know, they said inflation, they meant rising prices, but I'm saying even the way they were using the term, you would think in a five minute video from an economist, they might mention creating more money tends to historically, you know, have something to do with rapidly rising prices. Correct. So, so um, it's, it's everywhere. Whenever you Google inflation, you will always get the definition that inflation is a general increase in prices, or they might even say the price level, uh, whatever that means. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. And this is something that, you know, Mises talked about a lot. Um, and also to be clear, it's not that we're whining about, we don't like the way the definition has been you. It's that historically, originally inflation did mean an expansion of the quantity of you know money and sometimes they might include credit in that and so that's you know what it meant like you're inflating the money supply and then you know and it's because that tended to go hand in hand with rising prices that the public like you know why should i care and it's like oh well because stuff at the store is getting more expensive okay and so that you know that's where they obviously the association came in but yeah mises wrote a lot about how they cleverly over the course of the 20th century shifted it so that instead of talking about the cause, they started just talking about the symptoms and then it makes it impossible to cure the thing. Like you say, they start blaming labor unions or OPEC countries for raising oil. And those things are all relevant. And that's what I like too, that you, in your article, maybe we could switch to, you, you admit that even besides the quantity of money that's being injected into the system from like, you know, this external source, various prices can change for, you know, for what we might call micro reasons. So it's not that every yeah. rising price, but so anyway, do you want to, do you want to speak to that a little bit? So there's two ways I can bid up prices. I could either increase my production and get more money in that way, or I could in a magical word, create money out of thin air and I could bid up prices, prices that way too. So that that's exactly what governments do. They create more money to bid up prices. Uh, and of course, you could bid up prices with the existing money too. Uh, but if you bid up prices in one sector or one market, then prices would have to fall or stay still in another market. So you switch you switch money from one market to another. But whereas when you are creating money out of thin air, you can inject money to all the markets. So general prices increase. Uh, 
So just as I wrote in my article, uh, inflation, the money pumping is the disease and uh, the price inflation that follows is the, are the symptoms. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you spelled that out because it's, and this ties in, again, I, I got into a battle on Twitter the other day where some, I forget who it was, maybe you know, Andre, there was some, I think it was a European finance mirror, maybe it was from the UK, but someone was saying the, the best way, the best tax cut I can give to my constituents is to cut the rate of inflation in half. Do, do, do you know what I'm talking about? Does that video me? It's okay. No, no, I guess no. not. Okay. Yeah, so it was, I've never seen it. Never okay. Seen it. Yeah. So it was circulating like two weeks ago as of okay. when we're recording this. And so people on Twitter were like left leftists, progressive types were making fun of this. I don't know. He's a finance minister or prime minister. I don't know what the guy's role was. We're making fun of him saying, Oh, that's ridiculous. Inflation isn't a tax. Everybody knows that. What, what, what kind of, you know? And so I would, I went to like Wikipedia and showed how, no, there's a thing, you know, seniorage, and that's a standard thing in monetary economics to say that, you know, and they can call, refer to it as a type of tax where the, you know, the sovereign obtains resources from the public, not through explicit taxation, but by, you know, the 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 arbitrage earned on like it only costs a, a cent to print a hundred dollar bill, but yet you can go buy a hundred dollars worth of goods and services, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And and then I got a pushback from this lawyer guy that isn't a big fan of MMT. And he said, Oh, okay. Yeah. I agree. Inflation is a tax. And that's why Murphy, when a company raises its prices, you think that's, you know, that's, that's non-consensual taxation. Right. And you think companies should have to get the public to vote on whether they're allowed to raise prices. So of course, going to your point that that's slippery, that's part of the danger of saying inflation's rising prices because, any individual business could raise its prices and that's not what we mean by inflation. But beyond that, as you're saying, it's, yeah, if one company or one area has rising prices because the the demand is higher there, if the quantity of money stays the same in the whole system, then probably prices are falling elsewhere because people are just transferring their spending. You know, if if people decide they like this restaurant more than that restaurant, the one prices might go up, but the other place goes out of business. So, that, that again, just kind of just underlying, you know, the whole the silliness of that mentality, and also it's like, well, gee, if, if businesses could just keep raising their prices ten percent every year, why don't they keep doing that? Yeah, and uh, you know, the uh, obvious answer is, well, if the quantity of money is not rising ten percent each year, that they're going to, you know, find that their sales fall through the floor. Yeah, so many people here in Sweden were very angry on the uh, grocery store owners for. Uh, rising prices on um, raising prices on uh, eggs and uh, uh, stuff like that too they said they raised the prices too much so i said what is too much if they raised it too much why wouldn't they raise it like a thousand percent or something uh, if they could get away with it but the thing is that they can't get away with it because it's always the consumer who sets the price by choosing to buy or not to buy. Yeah. And it's all, I mean, and I think you touched on this too in your article, like it's not a, a, a proportional, it's not a mathematical relationship that, Oh, if, if the quantity of money goes up 10%, then every price goes up uniform. That's not what we're saying. And also 
you could imagine, even if the quantity of money is the same, and for some reason the demand to hold cash went down for some reason, that prices in general might rise. But when you're looking at you know what's happening in Argentina or what used to you know happen in Venezuela before Zimbabwe, that's not because just on its own the public decided every year they wanted to hold. You know, their, their real demand for money balances went down 99.9999% year after year. That's not what was going on. Yeah. It was because their central banks were creating so much more of their, you know, local currency. That that was obviously the explanation when you get big moves like that. Yeah, correct. Uh, what's also interesting, too, and I don't know, is, is this true in Sweden? Here in the United States, there's this big push to raise wage. Well, we have a minimum wage and, and to, to raise that. And so... When companies raise wages, that's considered unconscionable greed. But if people want to significantly raise, you know, wages for certain types of workers, you know, that that's not construed as you know being antisocial or anything. So it's just funny that even though a lot of those workers are making more than probably most people on planet Earth right now, yeah. <laughs> but that's not considered greed. That's it's always relative to you know the CEO of their Fortune 500 company here in the United States. So. It yeah. doesn't, that doesn't count. It's the same thing here, I have to say. Yeah. Another uh, aspect to understand, you know, why is it dangerous, uh, even like as, in terms of a, of a policy guide to look at the CPI is a famous episode in the 1920s in the United States, in the, in the middle period, the CPI was relatively constant. And that's why people like Irving Fisher were praising you know, the, the guidance, the leadership of this new Federal Reserve that, you know, that had only been established in late 1913 after, you know, after World War One ended and look at the stability that the Federal Reserve is giving to the United States in the mid you know 20s and very smooth prices are. And so Irving Fisher and others thought that the U.S. economy was on a very stable foundation when, in fact, people like Hayek and Mises were saying, no, the U.S., is, is, you know, there's there's an inflationary boom that's building and there's going to be a, a crash. And of course, you know, they were right about that. So just showing again that like the seeds of what we now call the Austrian business cycle were being planted in the 20s in the United States. But if you just looked at CPI, you would have thought, oh, no, the, you know, that everything is in terms of equilibrium and it's very, you know, st stable and so forth because consumer prices aren't rising. And yet still interest rates were artificially low. Yeah, so the CPI in Sweden right now is, I think, 4.7%, and it's down from the highest in December 22, when uh, it was at 10.2% or something, something. So many people are, are confident that the inflation is over, but <laughs> although the the money supply is actually contracting right now, I think, both in the United States and in Sweden and all over Europe. Um, you know, they are still going to create more money. It's a Ferris wheel that has to be keep spinning. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, maybe this is a good time for us to pivot. And can you just tell us uh, a bit about what the conditions are like in Europe and um, so, for example, for the countries that are all part of the, you know, that use the euro, the eurozone, yeah, still, I imagine, you know, I don't, I don't know the numbers, but the inflate, like the consumer price inflation rates 
can differ from country to country. Is that? Yeah, that is correct. Uh, the overall price inflation in the eurozone right now is 5.2%. And you have Slovakia ranking highest with, uh, I think, 9.6%. And Belgium and Spain are ranking lowest by 2.4% or something. Okay, so that that's a pretty big spread. Yes, it, differs. Mm -hmm. it differs very much. It does. And now, are there arguments then? Like, so do the people in the one area, like, do they want there to be higher? Do they want the ECB to tighten because they're saying it's too much here? Or, you know, are there those sorts of arguments among the constituent nations? Well, one thing could be that perhaps they think that Slovakia is falling behind. So, and so that a lot of euros have to be handed out to Slovakia. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, the narrative is that money pumping stimulates the economy. So that could be one thing, but um, otherwise, I don't know, actually. Okay. Um, why, why it differs so much? Because they use the same, uh, the same price inflation uh, metric for all the countries. And um, so I, I'm not sure what it has to do with Mm -hmm. I guess that's interesting because, yeah, in the United States, like we look at different things, but like I don't I've never seen I don't even know if it exists like to say what was the CPI increase in the state of Mississippi versus yeah. Tennessee or you know versus California. Like I, I've definitely seen home price indices yeah. in different states. You know, that's pretty popular because if people are trying to decide if they want to move somewhere that's something they would care about. And I guess there could be like cost of living things in general, like, Oh, if I'm going to get paid this much salary, you know, what's that going to give me? But I, but as economists, I don't typically see it broken out by state. Uh, that's not uh, something usually people focus yeah. on. But, but don't you guys have that on uh, BLS? The state, state uh, CPS. Oh yeah. 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 It's I'm sure as I'm saying it to you, I'm sure the data exists. I'm just saying yeah. I have never seen a discussion where somebody went and said, well, yeah, the Fed's doing such and such. But really, if you look in Georgia, CPI is only doing this kind of thing, whereas in Tennessee. So really, the issues at the state level, their policy, I've never yeah. seen someone make that argument, like if they're, if they're talking about what the Fed is doing. Whereas I can imagine in Europe, if it's more, you know, distinct, you know, if it's literally different countries and the, and the price inflation rates are so much different, even if they're using the same currency, I could imagine that would be more uh, of an issue and, and people like, attributing that to, to the different policies in the different countries. Yeah. So can you just give us a sense here as we wrap down, um, what, what is the situation, uh, in, in Sweden or, you, you know, Europe more generally, uh, are, are people worried that a crash is coming or do they think, Oh, finally we got through COVID and now we're back to normal or, you know, what's, what's the sentiment there? Yeah, well, the thing is that most Swedes right now are concerned about uh, raising uh, interest rates. So the interest rate in Sweden right now is uh, the, the central bank uh, interest rate is 4% now. And people are freaking out about loans and amortizations getting higher. So, uh, but what they don't realize is that higher interest rates means 
uh, a slower, a slowdown of the money supply. And now we even see a contraction of the money supply. And, and so, so, so all the focus, all the mm-hmm. focus in the media and everywhere, uh, at the workplace and, uh, f- on family dinners is just about the, uh, interest rates right now. So that's what people focus on, uh, on in Sweden. I don't know what, what's the, what the main focus is in, uh, us right now. Well, yeah, it's a similar, yeah. So what, maybe that's a, a better way to do it. Like, here, among other things that, right, the, the narrative is, oh, uh, you know, there were a lot of measures with stimulus checks and relief programs uh, after, during the you know, COVID era to provide relief and so forth. And then, oh, prices started rising and also had a lot to do with supply bottlenecks. But now that the situation is going back towards normal, still price inflation was too high. And so the Federal Reserve had to tighten and now the argument is just, you know, did the Fed tighten too much? Because yeah. as you say, now that's spilling over into rising interest rates and, or sorry, mortgage rates and things like that. And that might hurt the home, the housing market. And it's tight for consumers now because, uh, you know, loan rates are going up. And right. So it's this, the, the poor Federal Reserve has to do this balancing act and they're trying to do the right thing and they had the best people on the job, but it's different, you know, people have their different views and some people are hardliners and really like Lauren Summers and we need to raise rates to con- contain inflation and that will, you know, maybe cause unemployment and other people are more about, well, let's let there be more inflation because that will keep, let workers keep their jobs. And that's kind of, so yeah. you using a, a Phillips curve framework and not so much saying, well, it was this past monetary inflation that's causing these rising prices. Like that's, that's not really, you know, that might be lurking in the background among some of the professional economists, but that's not the words coming out of their mouth. No, I know, yeah, I know exactly how it is. Okay. Well, are you, uh, I guess in closing, are you optimistic or pessimistic about like the next year or two in terms of Sweden and, you know, just the economy or prospects for liberty? Like, are, are you seeing more people becoming aware of some of these issues or is it still pretty conventional narrative? I am, in, in the short term, I have to say I'm pessimistic, but in the, in the long run, I am optimistic. I think that if we keep doing what we're doing, if we can point the by, by our pens point the correction the direction of the sword i think we're i think we're good but we have a long way to go okay well yeah well put i mean that's i think the attitude that murray rothbard and others often embrace that in the short term things didn't look very good but in the long run you know we think that our ideas are right and you were convinced, you know, you started out as <laughs> thinking yeah. one way and, and got convinced. Hopefully we, we think to the correct view on, on some of those matters. So we can only hope in the long run we'll get more people on our side because the, the truth will out. Well, thank you, um, yeah. folks. My guest this week has been Andreas Granith. Andreas, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in and join us next week for another exciting interview. Catch you next time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.